I feel like we try to get SBF out of our system during the pre-show, so I'll do my best right now. That's a good idea. We all know that the effective altruism movement was a big part of Sam Bankman-Fried's marketing, because the idea is earning to give. I can work as a amoral Wall Street executive making money, but if I give it all away to good causes, I'm doing net good. So it's this idea of being a super rational moral agent and doing sort of like the unintuitive morally good thing. For instance, part of SBF's mythology is that he is really into animals. And so he went to the animal shelter and said, hey, can I volunteer? And they were like, no, volunteering to take care of animals is something any schlub can do. Go take your galaxy brain to Wall Street, make a billion dollars, and then donate a huge amount of money. That's the really morally right thing for you to do. Right. When you're a genius like Sam, it's such a burden. You know, how you apply that intellect, it just matters so much. And so the discussion in the effective altruism community, they like to say that the discussion is, gosh, did we create Sam because we have this kind of esoteric, complex moral philosophy that assumes that you can reason about the world in a very determinate way? And the answer is, no, that wasn't what created FTX. What created FTX was two backers of the effective altruism movement, Luke Ding, again, a a moral currency trader turned philanthropist, and Jan Talon, who was the co-founder of Skype. And they loaned SBF about $116 million yeah. to start Alameda and to start trading. And so Sam was actually financially backed by the people who back the effective altruism movement. And Sam also quickly pivoted from whatever effective altruism is to this weird billionaire type of so-called giving called long-termism, which is basically the idea that the poor and middle class today don't matter and there's nothing we can do for them. It's already too late. So let's focus on long-term goals that might, I don't know, say, extend the life of billionaires and preserve the world for billionaires in the future. It's really dark stuff. It is. And it seems to be a family philosophy. And I would imagine that's how Sam was drawn in. His mom and dad also subscribe to this philosophy. They participate in that community. They're kind of players in that community as well. And so I think what this reveals to us is that these individuals were the original puppet masters that got Alameda rolling, that got FTX going. This is where Sam's initial money came from. So these people technically, you know, are the are the originators of Alameda. It, it, and Sam just happened to be the person that they chose to put in the driver's seat. And his backer, Talon, recalled their loans to Alameda in 2018. So they knew something was wrong. I mean, the implication is they knew that there was an issue with Sam. There had been whistleblower complaints sort of given to this effective altruism group about Sam's behavior and probably financial malfeasance. So they they pulled their backing, but then they never... Uh, I, and I think they maybe made him step down from the board of the Effective Altruism Foundation. So there were definitely questions, but obviously nobody said anything. <laughs> yeah, of course. They were happy to take his donations. Yeah. I, I think it tarnishes the whole movement. To me, I can't even imagine the brand coming back from this. Effective altruist type stuff is advertising on Bloomberg's Matt Levine newsletter, because GiveWell is one of these effective altruist type 
organizations that supposedly does all this research so that your donations are super effectively used. And I used to donate to GiveWell, but I was kind of critical because GiveWell had this program, which was all about giving malaria nets to people in Africa in malaria regions. And they GPS tagged the nets so they could somehow track them and make sure they were going where they were supposed to go. And they reported everything's hunky-dory, everything's going great. But I was reading news stories about how all these nets were ending up in the rivers because people were fishing with them. And I realized that, you know, even if you do all this due diligence, the structure of having an NGO that comes to a place and says, okay, we're here to solve malaria. That's actually not very productive because what you really need to do is talk to local people and be like, okay, what are your pressing needs right now? And you might discover that they're like, yeah, malaria is a big problem. At the same time, we don't have food or water security. So we we can't really deal with malaria (laughs) right now. If you give me a malaria net, the most useful thing I can do is fish with it. Yeah. Dad, you brilliant SOB. This is exactly where I wanted to take this is all of this feels of a theme to me. What the effect of altruism depends on is that the central planning is somehow better at determining the needs of the individual than the local individual. And if that isn't just exactly what we're seeing with the central banking too, the central financial planning, the central economy planning that has led us to the situation we are in and not to be reductive about this. But if you zoom out, what even enables the effect of altruism folks or people like Sam is the money printing. It is the easy money. We have the central bank policy has produced all of these crazy billionaires who basically created nothing, right? They created, they maybe were a part of PayPal or they were a part of some tech company. They were a part of it. And now they are rich for generations. And so this is what happens when you enable individuals who think they're so smart because they did something during an economically loose time. They created something that got funded crazy because the money was cheap, but they internalized that as their brilliance and how they're smarter than all of the poor plebs. And they can plan this. And it all comes back to centralization. It's the money policy or the effect of altruism policy, or in Sam's case, he's printing money and he's buying media and he's actually paying for a narrative to be created about him. And so then you have fiat narratives. You have a fiat media. It all is just, I think, kind of of the same theme. Wow. So many places to go there. I just want to circle back on this idea of centralization and how it's like we centralize the attribution of success. Because when you mention PayPal, we all think of Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. And the fact is that Elon brought money to PayPal. He brought investment that kept the company going, but he was a terrible manager and they fired him. And then everyone knows about Peter Thiel, but there was a whole PayPal mafia, a whole culture around PayPal. And it's a today it's a horrible company, but their initial goal was to create something like Bitcoin. And then the reality was you can't do that as a centralized company and you become a monster like PayPal. But these success stories have been mythologized into the stories of huge individuals like Peter Thiel, Steve Jobs, Balmer, Bill Gates. And that's just not reality. The reality is all of these big companies are full of thousands of people doing a great job, but they can't explain what they do to you. Another way to put that is there are all of these very complex functions inside large organizations that need to be done and need to be executed quite well. And there's like this idea that everyone who's earning a salary and working for these companies is lazy and uninspired. And it's really just the founders and the CEOs who are like so motivated and driving the whole thing. 
And it really just couldn't be farther from the truth. My experience working with large companies is, generally speaking, the people I work with are just, you know, A-grade players, like really doing a great job, trying really hard, very thoughtful. And often, especially in the IT infrastructure, you're fighting senior management because they're actually more motivated by short-term financial engineering, stock market price, their bonuses, stuff like that. And so we have this weird environment where the narrative is that it's these visionaries, it's these famous people, it's these central bankers driving the world. But the reality is that the real driver of economic and institutional activity is us. It's little people. We're just doing one little function really well. Yep. And it's all about us. It's not about these people who are taking all the credit. Yeah, there is no machine without the cogs. And the knowledge and the ability is actually distributed. It's truly distributed, but culturally, we centralize it onto an individual. Because it's an easier narrative. Yes. Yeah, it's easier to sell. It's easier to understand. It's easier to talk about. I mean, you see it today all the time. I remember when Steve Jobs was still alive, every individual action that Apple took was attributed to a direct decision of Steve Jobs. He may or may not have been involved, right? But the way it was talked about publicly was Steve Jobs decided to do this. And that's why I am so, so grateful that Satoshi had the vision and the foresight and wisdom to step away because anything that occurred in Bitcoin, any development, any controversy, you would all be pinned on Satoshi like it is with Vitalik right now on Ethereum. And it, it, it creates a cult of personality. And instead, we just focus on the technology in Bitcoin. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, December 16th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me. Hey, it's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. Today's episode is a big pivot from our single issue episode on the IMF and the World Bank from last week. Check it out if you want to hear depressing truths about the 20th century and our current world. (laughs) Yeah. And how the entire Western banking system works to suppress the, quote, developing world, which is still developing 50 years later for some reason. When are they going to develop already? What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they just need another loan. Right. It's probably another round of IMF structural adjustment that they need. (laughs) On today's episode, we are going to focus on some sort of economic and political news. I don't think that there is any fundamental big shifts that are too exciting, but there's a lot of day-to-day blow-by-blow, which might be useful to go over. The ECB is in a conundrum because they're attempting to limit wage growth in Europe, but their staff are actually threatening to strike over insufficient wage increases in the face of inflation that the ECB is unable to An ECB means European Central Bank. I'm trying to say all the acronyms. My bad. The Commodities Future Trading Commission, CFTC, the U.S. body in charge of commodity financial activity, has declared that Ethereum, Bitcoin, and Tether are commodities in a very weird aside in a ruling against SBF. We'll go into that and kind of suss out what's going on there. Our favorite United States Senator Elizabeth Warren, disclosure, not actually our favorite senator, has a new Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act. And it is horrible. It violates the First Amendment. It might also violate the Fourth Amendment. You have to work hard to violate the Fourth Amendment, but Senator Warren has done so. It's likely just Warren doing her whole media whatever thing. 
The U.S. government's interest on debt is accelerating in a straight line up. Uh, seems like Lynn Alden might be right about the government debt spiral. In privacy news, there's some research and an article about how Know Your Customer, KYC, and anti-money laundering AML rules are, according to research, an exercise in bureaucratic incompetence overhead and does nothing to make the world fairer, better, or safer. And then in Bitcoin education, we'll get into Bitcoin Optech 230 and also have a slight aside about how Ethereum multisig works. Why are we talking about Ethereum? Have we gotten a new sponsor? What's going on? Well, you'll find out. Disclosure, we have not gotten a sponsor. There's just an interesting detail there. Then we have some corrections and boosts and some emails to go over. So that's a full episode. I'm looking forward to it. So shall we enjoy a little schadenfreude about the European Central Bank trying to shortchange their staff with a 4% pay increase while inflation's over 10? 4% now. They initially offered a 1.4% pay rise, but uh, that didn't go over well. People are losing faith in this institution, said Carlos Bowles, vice president of the union that represents ECB staff. What the ECB leadership is telling us is, sorry, we missed our own inflation target, and now you, the staff, are going to pay the price. That's a good summary. <laughs> I know. And there's no denying it, right? Because like, you can't fool this staff. They know what's up. Right. It's literally their job to understand inflation. And you're like, yeah, would you accept a 6% pay cut? Thank you very much. And, you know, the reality is, um, I mean, if you were really going to give these people an actual pay raise to meet inflation over there, it'd probably need to be like a 14 percent, 15 percent pay increase. That's just not possible. But that's the reality. So this is kind of a schadenfreude moment. At the same time, it reveals that the ECB's goals are fundamentally incoherent, because if if they're an institution that can't even get their staff to accept their economic policy objectives, how on earth are whole national populations going to accept pay cuts due to inflation? Yeah, it seems like a real um, judgment on their policy that it's unrealistic. Yep anti the common person. And doesn't it doesn't it really kind of demonstrate that at least over there, a recession is absolutely inevitable. If a negotiated cost of living is 4%, but we all kind of admit the reality is like 13 to 15%, then everybody is way behind. Everybody's starting way behind on, on like their available money. If economic growth is on a good year, 2% per year, and the majority of people are experiencing a 6 to 7% drop in income. There are other contributors to GDP. The largest is actually government spending. But government spending, if it just remains flat, then you're going to see negative GDP growth on that negative 6% in consumer spending. So that would be a recession. It's a downer because I think these are the real hard numbers that you could you can get rid of every single chart you've looked at. You can get rid of every single thing that a financial analyst has predicted is going to happen. And you could just look at the reality of the numbers here. If people are getting a 4% raise when the average thing you're buying or spending money on has gone up somewhere between 8% and 15%, well, that's going to create a recession. That's, there's just like, that's the only, excuse me, and obviously I'm an idiot here, but it seems like the only number you really need to look at is just those two things. People got less money. The math does not look good 
Yeah. What also doesn't look good is the Commodity Future Trading Commission's ruling that Ethereum, Tether, and Bitcoin are commodities. It comes from a document that is actually Commodity Futures Trading Commission plaintiff versus Samuel Bankman-Fried, FTX Trading LTD. So this is just another bit of interesting fallout from the FTX debacle. Yeah. Uh, let me just read like one of the the references in this document. And I think that this kind of, you know, because when you hear, wait, the CFTC is saying that Bitcoin, Ethereum and Tether are commodities. That's crazy. How could Tether be a commodity? Tether is literally a company taking dollar deposits Mm -hmm. and issuing a dollar token. That's not a commodity. You could entertain a backwards argument for Ethereum somehow. Um, But Tether is just, there's just no argument. It it is absolutely centrally managed by its very nature. After six beers and you squint your eyes, Ethereum might look like a commodity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, if you try hard enough. A digital asset is anything that can be stored and transmitted electronically and has associated ownership or use rights. Digital assets include virtual currencies such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Tether, which are digital representations of value that functions as mediums of exchange, units of count, and or stores of value. Are they describing money here? It sounds like Uh, they're describing money. Ah, the classic government move of just expanding the definition. Certain digital assets are commodities, including Bitcoin, Ether, Tether, and others, as defined under Section 1A of the Act 7 USC yada yada. That looks like a typo. Hmm. Or I think that they may need to say that these things are commodities to create standing for the CFTC to go after Sam Bankman-Fried. So there isn't a sophisticated legal argument with reasoning Hmm. here. This is sort of an aside, and it's in the section of the complaint that has to do with the legal framework for kind of justifying why they're going after Sam. And so I wouldn't panic over this, but I feel like things like this slip into precedent and then they get referenced and suddenly we have a legal precedent. That does happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised you're I'm surprised you're missing the obvious bureaucratic play here, too. Although I think your analysis is correct. Um, And I believe you're going to have essentially uh, a short period of time where different agencies are going to kind of try to assert why they should be the ones leading the charge against SBF. And of course, the SEC has their position. Uh, This is actually or this is I I watched uh, two days of Senate testimony. And this is this is what I came to understand is you have different entities within the U.S. government that feel like they should be the one that takes like takes on the legal case against SBF. Uh, But ultimately, what's likely going to happen, because this is how our government is structured, is the legal department, the Justice Department will just take it on as a meta case because they're the ones that have the legal authority to span across all of the different departments, all the different jurisdictions, if you will. And so they will likely this will likely become a Justice Department case against SBF. But there is this period of time where the different departments are trying to make their case. However, I think you're missing the obvious thing here. I thought this is where you were going to go. I think we've entered the phase of time, the period of time where um, these different uh, regulatory agencies, this is their last chance to become the king of this domain, right? And this is the CFTC's chance to become the king of cryptocurrency. Oh, yeah. And this is their kind of using this as the opportunity, because even just as of a couple of weeks ago on November 30th, uh, CFTC chief Robinson, he reportedly suggested that Bitcoin is the only crypto asset that can be viewed as a commodity. You and I have heard Gary say that on multiple occasions as well. And I think what you have 
here as, well, this is a last last chance because if they become the kings of regulating crypto, that's going to be a ginormous increase in their budget, in their power, in their standing. This is how all these agencies work. It's just natural. I'm not casting judgment. No, you're, you're completely right. Sorry, I guess I just uh, didn't care, maybe, because it's yeah the argument around... We want the CFTC to regulate Bitcoin, not the SEC, because the CFTC is a much more mediocre, hands-off agency, maybe. I think that argument is flawed at best. So what's interesting is that the SEC is really fumbling the ball on being the crypto regulator because they keep claiming that they have the jurisdiction to regulate crypto, but then they don't actually regulate it. What they do is they go after low-hanging fruit like Kim Kardashian doing a crypto scam, and they never attempted to do anything serious about consumer protection or legal compliance with these entities like FTX. And in fact, Gary Gensler has been withholding his public calendar release since June, likely because he met with FTX so many times. There is something bad in the publicly available data about Gary Gensler and who he's been meeting with at the SEC, and he is trying to prevent that getting out as long as possible. So it looks like Gary has been a little too greedy with his own political career, and it's gotten in the way of him kind of doing a good job at the SEC. I don't disagree with what you're saying. I just don't agree on the one part, and that is I do not believe it is a foregone conclusion that the CFTC will regulate Bitcoin. And I think it could come under the guidance of the SEC. The issue I have with that is CFTC, the CFTC stands for Commodities Future Trading. Bitcoin is a commodity. It is legitimate. I mean, that's why I think it should be regulated by the CFTC. It is not a security. And if it is regulated by a securities body that manages that, it's going to get it's that's the expertise of that body. That is the perspective of that body. That is the lens. That is the hammer that they have. And they're hammering those nails. And that is an inappropriate match for Bitcoin. And it also will subject Bitcoin to all kinds of things and oversight that are just not even really necessarily practical or, co- or possible for Bitcoin. And so that's why I care. And those are all really good points. I think that leads perfectly into Senator Warren's Digital Asset Money Laundering Act, because we can get into the specifics of this act. And I read the whole thing. It's six pages. It's nothing. It's really a nothing burger of just crazy Senator Warren saying the most alarmist things completely unrelated to facts. There's no there's no research in it. You know what? If if you took the name off this and I told you that this came from a right wing politician, like a Cheney style, you know, like a Dick Cheney style politician, you'd believe me. You wouldn't second guess that at all reading this thing. It looks like a totalitarian total grab for surveillance. It does indeed. Reading this act, it makes me think that Warren is some sort of populist who doesn't really embody fundamental values around democracy and respect for institutions and individual rights, because it's just incredibly overreaching. The act essentially defines anyone creating software that enables self-custody as being some form of money transmitter and therefore requiring them to report with FinCEN, Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which is an unelected financial regulator that, uh, you know, essentially informs the most draconian financial law that creates regulatory moats around large companies and penalizes anyone trying to innovate or do anything useful in finance. Founded in 1990. 
you would end up having to collect the name, date of birth, physical address, and phone number of every party in every cryptocurrency transaction. If you run a node, you would need to register as a money transmitter. If you create wallet software, so this would apply to Craig Wright, the creator of Sparrow Wallet, you would need to register with FinCEN and install KYC into your software or else it would be out of compliance. So this is clearly a First Amendment violation because in the United States, software is protected speech. Unfortunately, in most countries in the world, this is not a precedent. Before you go there, I mean, aren't we seeing that precedent set a little bit with Tornado Cash right now? I mean, we're kind of seeing they're laying the groundwork for for arresting somebody for open source code. And just a really quick correction, it's Craig Raw is the developer of Sparrow. Oh, did I Craig, call him Craig Wright? Oh, I'm sorry. Slightly somebody different. Wow. <laughs> no wow. Worries. I'm not normally the guy with names, so I'm just happy to have I might be trying to troll our listeners and have them (laughs) send in a million correction boosts. Right. Sorry. My bad. I'll I'll be more savvy next time. That would have been really embarrassing if it weren't intentional. So this bill is absolutely bonkers crazy because it's, it's basically written on the assumption that the main purpose of cryptocurrency is circumventing financial laws for the purpose of performing crime. And even Chainalysis, which is a a company that was basically founded on that principle, doesn't agree with that analysis. They think that there's certainly less illicit activity on the Bitcoin blockchain than in the US dollar system as a percentage of transactions, not total value, obviously. So the first question is, why do you think we need this sort of draconian surveillance? And the answer is we don't. There's no justification. The second is, are any of these proposals technically feasible? And the answer is no. If we assume that we want to have basically an open internet and not have to register with our government identity card every time we connect a device to the internet, then enforcing (laughs) rules like this would not work at all technologically. Although I think in a lot of cases, what they'll attempt to do is enforce them at the financial institution level. Like um, one of the things in this bill is the uh, idea that they want to develop a risk calibrated AML program program that blocks persons from using their software or network throughput. And if they suspect people are moving funds related to crime, it'll automatically block them. They want some sort of software system developed on the financial institution system to do that. Uh, And so I think what they're going to try to do is use the different entry points on and off the ramps where you on and off from crypto. They're going to use that to just uh, just try to do as much control as possible. But I mean, you know, what struck me, Dad, is I watched the hearing and Warren and her moment was in day two, if anybody wants to go watch it. And um, she showed up to the hearing. It had been going for hours. She showed up three minutes before her time to ask her question. She sat down. She read from a script. She just was looking down at the script while she asked her questions. She monologued for about 60% of her time. Then she'd ask a question. She sent her first question to Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful from Shark Tank. Mr. Wears shorts under his suit, right? Yeah, Mr. 15 million from FTX. And he actually started to answer the question correctly, uh, amazingly. And as soon as he started giving anything that was counter to what she wanted, she shut him down and she monologued for another three minutes. She'd ask a second question. Then she shut him down. And then she sat there and she said, this is why we need to pass my bill is to stop things like FTX from happening in the future. If we don't pass my bill, my common sense regulation, then things like FTX will keep happening. 
<laughs> when I so she was just there to collect, and then she left, like sound bites, right, like TV clips yeah. of her talking. She left a couple minutes after that. She never listened to any of the testimony beforehand, <laughs> and she never listened to any of the testimony afterwards. And you know what is really outrageous, Dad, is when you read this bill, there's not a single thing that addresses what happened with FTX. It doesn't do a single thing. She's just riding on this event to try to pass this. Now, I agree with you. It's not likely to happen. But here's what I do worry about. And I wonder what your take is on this. I think what you get with bills like this, this is how lawyers think. I've uh, unfortunately had to deal with this. It's a negotiation tactic and it's pretty universal. You've all heard of it. You come in, you come in, you, you way over ask. You way over ask. Like, um, I've been negotiating things where they came in at the last minute and they way over asked and that ask completely blew the deal up, destroyed the deal. And what they were doing was they were doing a shot that was so far over the bounds that when I come back on a compromise, I'm still way over the original line that I would have crossed. And that's what they're doing here. They're shooting way over because some of this stuff runs against the uh, First Amendment and Second Amendment. <laughs> And Fourth Amendment. Not the second, but the Fourth Amendment. And if she yeah, snuck yeah. in uh, banning yeah. gun ownership, that <laughs> no. would have been qu quite something. No, that was that's just, um, you know, because it's talked about so much. So that's just like on the it's on the tip of the brain. But no, it's first and fourth. And uh, so it's not going to happen. Right. It's just not going to happen. It's too much legal trouble. But what we will get is something that's still close. And it'll be wrapped up in an omnibus. It'll be in a bigger package. And it's going to be, quote unquote, common sense legislation, quote unquote. No, no one will have read it. Yeah. And some of this stuff will get through. And the stuff that concerns me the most is the stuff that affects self-custodial wallets and peer-to-peer -peer transactions. All of that stuff is very concerning to me. And there's also some provisions in here where exchanges are expected to automatically report without any request from no warrant, no probable cause is the trigger. The exchanges are just going to be expected to report your day-to-day -day activity to some government agency automatically. Sorry, that's already happening. That didn't bother me. Because I've been reading Coin Center's work for a long time and banks, which is a uh, advocacy group in D.C. They're like, you know, a lobbyist that's paid by a group of crypto companies. Right. So a lot of altcoiners are sponsoring Coin Center, but the people involved are at least competent. And they've done a lot of work understanding how the suspicious activity report regime works in the U.S. So SARS are these forms that have to be filed when there is a transaction at $10,000 or above, but they can actually be filed for any suspicious transaction. What is a suspicious transaction? Well, it's very vague. And so as a form of regulatory compliance, many financial institutions just automatically file SARS all day long for many transactions. And so if you interact with a bank and you do anything, including just receiving your paycheck via the bank, there might be a SAR associated with that. And you'll never know because these are secret reports, they're secret documents. You have no right to know if they've been filed regarding your activity. So I don't see that as fundamentally very different. I think the real issue is the way that this bill is incompatible with being able to do open source software development. Yes, yes. You'd have to shut down GitHub. You'd have to turn GitHub into an institution like a bank with the sort of compliance that a bank has. It's 
preposterous. Yeah, it's not it's not possible with open source as far as I can tell. Just one last point too is it also uh makes interfacing with any kind of coin join or tornado cash um and conceivably even just sort of the mechanisms of Monero and Zcash potentially banned. They consider that those would be considered criminal transactions by Warren's bill. Financial privacy has been under attack for a long time, but this would be another nail in that coffin. Well, why does this play into our discussion of the CFTC. Because I think that what Warren is doing here is a, it's a shot across the bow. This is kind of a signal that we're entering the next phase of financial privacy dismantling. Because what's fundamentally motivating legislation that Warren is proposing, even if Warren is not aware of the fundamental forces that are driving her, is that basically the entire fiat money system is becoming increasingly fragile because after the 2008 monetary crisis, the incentives that create leverage and excessive debt in the global financial system, they were not changed. They were actually accelerated. And the Federal Reserve, their model for regulating the global economy involves the creation of large amounts of financial leverage. And it's a complicated process. It's easy to get lost in the details. But the TLDR is that for the Fed to continue doing its role today as a financial regulator, it needs to encourage the creation of financial leverage and risk-taking in this system. And this means that bailouts are necessary. And so on the one hand, we need bailouts for financial institutions because leverage is inherently dangerous and unstable. And as we have more of it in the system, you get more frequent financial blowups that require the Fed to backstop the market with infinite dollars that are printed to bail out insolvent uh, companies that are that could systemically explode like Lehman Brothers and take down the whole financial system because it's an inherently fragile system. They begin to just expect that bailout because they know that's how the system works now. And so they operate that way. It's how the system works. If you are a bank and you operate cautiously, you get blown away, you don't make any money, and you get fired as a director and someone more risk-taking will be hired to fill that role. So these are the negative incentives of, of the private financial system. On the government financial system side, the interest on U.S. debt is going up in a line like a, I mean, it's, a, it's like a logarithmic line. And this is not sustainable because the U.S. is already in a debt spiral where debt is being issued to pay the interest on the debt that's already been issued. This is, this is a spiral. It's Lynn Alden's government debt spiral playing out in real time. So what does this have to do with financial privacy? Well, the only way to keep this system going, which is in the interest of everyone who's in charge of every U.S. senator, every central banker, every head of the SEC, these establishment people will lose their jobs if we fundamentally change our economic system. It would be a large political and social change. And the people in charge today would have to be cycled through. So there's every incentive to maintain this fiat Ponzi system. And that means gating national economies and basically forcing common people to pay for this system via inflation. Our savings, the value of our labor, our quality of life needs to be 
sucked away from us and provided to financial institutions, the government, and sort of more politically connected intermediaries so that they can continue this extractive process. And removing financial privacy, removing off-ramps to Bitcoin is necessary because if value escapes from the fiat Ponzi into Bitcoin, the Ponzi collapses. It is a Ponzi scheme. And it's funny that that's what gets thrown at Bitcoin so often. And you look at all these dramatic attempts um, and you really see they're trying to keep you in the system because they need that money going into the system. And it seems like perhaps I know that uh, you're going to make the case that KYC is really just uh, bureaucratic butt covering. But I feel like KYC is actually really about keeping people in the system and identifying when they're on the edge of the system. I look at this Warren bill, even if it doesn't pass, some version of it is going to make it through. And if some of these things go through, it's going to be devastating um, to the point where uh, I, I, I just I hate to even think of it. I really do, because I don't want to get all doomsdaysy about it, but I just hate to see where it could go. I just see the things getting the, the, all of the dials they can turn to make them tighter are turning. And it feels like there could be a point in time where companies like CoinKite, who are selling the cold card or Trezor, can no longer sell their product in the United States. You know, like I don't mean to get all like Glenn Beck and go buy your gold right now, everybody. But when I look at this bill, if something like that passed, I, I just I could see them going after companies like Cold Card and Trezor and preventing them from sh- from selling here. So, you know, it's like they're selling a tool that enables self-custody of Bitcoin, which in a bill like this is interpreted as an attack on the U.S. financial system. Yeah. And what happens if they if they ban all transactions that have been coin joined? Right. That is a concern that I bring up up like you know every every two months on this show is this kind of stuff makes me think that all of my coin joined bitcoin is going to be uh a second class bitcoin and it makes me concerned that only kyc bitcoin is going to be considered legitimate bitcoin by these institutions assuming something like this goes through i know this is a concern of yours and many people i guess i have a different view i think that in a world where CoinJoin Bitcoin is treated as tainted and illegal. In Senator Warren's bipartisan bill that the mainstream media thinks is just a great idea to cut down on crypto scams. Yeah, I mean, that's how they're... You got to understand, the normies outside our bubble, they look at her bill and they think, oh, this will fix it. This is what we need to do. No, they don't. No one's ever looked at this bill. I've got a link to the CNBC article about this, or CNN, Mm -hmm. And they clearly have not read the bill. (laughs) No, but they spin it as this great thing. A Democrat and Republican coming together to cut down crypto scams. If CoinJoin is illegal, then self-custody is also illegal. So what would you rather have? Self-custody that's illegal and they know you've got those coins or illegal coin join in self-custody and who owns them? I don't know. Yeah, I see your point. Yeah, I could just stack sats for another 30 years and then when I'm ready to retire, leave the country and spend my Bitcoin. (laughs) Sure. I mean, they can't look up your butt at the border and find Bitcoin when you're on your way out. Right. (laughs) At the same time, it's disturbing that this legislation is coming through in the U.S. because the U.S., at least socially, has often acted as a counterbalance to a lack of free speech and individual rights 
in other developed countries. For instance, it turns out that in Canada, not to harp on the trucker protests, but the Canadian Constitution has this little clause that basically suspends the Constitution and all constitutional rights whenever the president wants or prime minister. That's very undemocratic. That's a real problem. And they haven't solved that. And that's what happened with the trucker protests, who, you know, maybe they were a bunch of hooligans causing a mess. Maybe that's also free speech. I don't know. Depends on where you stand. At the same time, the tools used to shut them down were completely authoritarian. And yeah, the financial system. Yeah. Weaponizing the financial system is not cool. If you weaponize the financial system, the collateral damage is someone's going to starve. So you don't want to do that. Right. And in the case of the truckers, you know, some of them now have legal records that prevent them from truck driving. So now they no longer have a career either. Yeah. Financially destroying your political opponents is a great approach to staying in power because there's this relationship between political representation and wealth. And so they're they're one to one correlated. If you annihilate someone's wealth, they're probably not going to have much political representation going forward either. But um, this even is a problem in the UK. The UK is uh, very interesting because we think of it as a country sort of like the United States, except you don't actually have many free speech rights in the UK. Um, If you insult someone rudely online, you can actually be punished with jail time. There's an interesting case in the UK that's being challenged in the European Court of Human Rights about an individual who made some very crass statements about a uh, U.S., uh, not a U.S., a U.K. soldier. And they were certainly rude, uh, very insensitive. But should that person be imprisoned for that speech? Clearly not. But that's actually a case that's happening in the U.K. right now. What does this have to do with financial law? Well, the, the U.K. also has banned all Bitcoin ATMs. And so free speech, financial freedom, these are related issues. And they seem to be under attack throughout the world, yep. including in the yep. developed world. Yep. Warren's bill cracks down on ATMs as well. So I think the high level view is that we're moving into an era of fundamental attacks on human rights and property rights, because the creeping encroachment of know your customer, anti-money laundering rules and restrictions on free speech, these are actually reducing our ability to own financial assets and to exercise political independence. And I don't think that there's a conspiracy here. I think that there are some very strong incentives to centralize power and control of society and the financial system so that this existing structure can survive the debt spiral that is accelerating right now at both the corporate and government level. And so if the solution to that debt spiral is basically confiscating the wealth of most citizens via inflation, well, they clearly can't be allowed to have political representation or they might have a problem with that plan. And they can't have financial freedom because then they would withdraw their purchasing power from a system that is structurally confiscating everybody's wealth. Yeah, because if you think about it, even a 2% inflation target is ridiculous. Like we've just normalized 2% inflation. By the way, I think if you look at it, we've never really hit that target. Do you, know, do you know where 2% inflation comes from? I would love to know. It's got to be like some big academic study, like probably got right. a Nobel Prize, right? Based on probably looking at 
past empires that crashed and what they did wrong. And of course, right. historically, just just really good research. In fact, I would imagine real time data, right? They're probably constantly I mean, they evaluating have all this it. financial surveillance. They probably got so much data behind that target, right? Yeah. Gotta be. Well, actually, no, there's no data behind it. It comes from a public relations campaign that the Central Bank of Australia put out in, I think, the 90s or uh, maybe wait, the what? 80s. Yeah. You mean a, a PR arm <laughs> of a bank? I mean, yeah, it was yeah, it was like a local advertising company probably came up with the slogan. They were like, oh, you know, inflation's six percent now. Everyone seems really upset. Why don't we say two percent? Yeah. People would probably like two percent. They were like, yeah, two percent. That sounds good. And then suddenly this becomes the target for the world. Two percent. I mean, at scale in the United States, that's a nice little grift for the government. It lets them continue to social spend. You know, it's like as long as I don't go crazy, I could see two percent grift of inflation. You know, because what you're doing is you're basically taking that money from the people every year, 2%. That's a nice little chunk of change on top of the taxes they're paying and all that kind of stuff. But the problem is, is that our spend is just way beyond even what that can support. Well, it's like what Satoshi said, having a centralized monetary system requires large amounts of trust. And history is full of examples of that trust being violated. And our last sort of note about our centralized financial system is a chart that I got on Twitter, which just shows the interest expense on U.S. public debt outstanding. And they have to pay interest on that debt. So in November 2020, the interest was $584 billion. Gosh, that's a lot. Sure. Yeah. But then in 2021, it dropped down to $482 billion. So it kind of went down from 2020 to 2021. And now in 2022, the interest is 766 billion. So yeah, if you look at the chart, you know, this is, this is a line going up, I think, uh, yeah, at about 45 degrees. That's, uh, that's a great line. If it's corporate profits or your network, it is a bad line. If that's your interest payments on your debt. Yeah. Well, it's becoming like one of the biggest budget items on the list. Yeah. It's, it's over social security. I think it's over military spending too. I mean, that's a big line item. It's one of the top three line items in the U.S. federal budget. It's how a lot of uh, probably U.S. consumers feel like their interest. They're paying most most of their monthly expenses to interest and it. It just doesn't seem sustainable. And this was the thesis of a lot of a lot of the finance wonks out there. They thought that the Fed would capitulate before we got to this point. Right. Right. It seems like Jerome Powell is not taking calls from the Treasury, because if I were the Treasury secretary, I'd have the Fed president on speed dial and say, hey, buddy, I know you want to look like an inflation hawk, real tough guy on inflation, but uh, this, uh, this debt burden is looking pretty bad over here. At the same time, there's an easy solution. The U.S. government can just refinance all this debt to longer term debt because the yield curve is inverted. Short term debt is actually yielding a higher interest rate than longer term debt, which is also a recession indicator. The exact mechanics of that are a little complicated. Maybe we can get into them some other time. But the U.S. has this weird issue where a lot of the government deficit is financed short term on these one and two year notes that roll over very quickly. And so the U.S. is actually quite sensitive to short term interest rate hikes. And you might say, Dad, that sounds really stupid. Why would you finance so much of your spending short term when long term interest rates are lower? 
And I would say, right, that is stupid, except because U.S. government debt is also a form of financial money, it's like oil. It needs to be fed into the global financial and monetary machine to keep this system working. And that, that system, it runs on short-term debt. It doesn't really like the long-term debt as much for various reasons that I barely understand. Part of being the global reserve currency is providing sufficient short-term debt to keep the global financial system running. So it's a very complex system. It's not very reasonable when you try to reason about it kind of simply. Simply, you say. All right, I'll take your word for it. Sorry, I've been trying to understand this stuff better, and I feel like it's breaking my mind and my ability to explain it to other people. I had a conversation recently where I felt like I probably sounded like a nutter just explaining how all of this works. So I get you. I get you. Right. People can't believe it. They're like, no, 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 no. You're saying I don't own my bank account. That's ridiculous. You're crazy. You're a conspiracy theorist. And it's like, no, if a bank goes bust, you will join a list of unsecured creditors. Like that means you don't own your, the contents of your bank account. It's being custodied for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a, you think of it in that term. They're, they hold the keys. <laughs> right. They got the key. It's like we needed Bitcoin so we could understand traditional money. Well, we were like fishes swimming in water. What's water? We needed to try something else and be like, look back and like, oh, oh, we were in water before. I didn't realize. And that is absolutely true. It is through Bitcoin to which I've understood how any of this works. And it's it's why I have faith in Bitcoin, right? It's because of Bitcoin, I learned how this works. And now I'm now I, I, I am just waiting for it to fall apart. Bitcoin or or the other thing. <laughs> The fiat system, like I, I don't mean to say this with any kind of judgment, but this is so far beyond anything my parents can wrap their brain around. You know, they've just lived in this environment their entire lives. They have no idea why their why their savings accounts aren't re- and their CDs aren't returning the interest rates they used to. They they just they're so far from even beginning to wrap their head around this system. It almost it, it feels like uh, like they've been hoodwinked a bit. And I was going right down that same path. Um, It's like by learning what sound money is, you learn what isn't sound money as well. And then you understand why the system has these ebbs and flows, these ups and downs, and why these interest rate hikes are happening and the energy war that's happening. Like it all makes sense in that context. And are your parents waiting for things to normalize? Are they hoping that interest rates go up and they don't have to change their strategy? Yeah, they're just assuming it's just a temporary thing that we're into. Yeah. Temporary for the past 14 years. Yeah. I mean, they don't know of a system that worked any other way. Okay. Let me give you a pitch. Maybe you can try this on them. I was talking to a friend of mine with a pension and, you know, he'll listen to the podcast occasionally, but he's never bought Bitcoin. So I said, you know, Bitcoin is actually insurance on your pension. Oh, really? How does that work? I'm not paying premiums. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's more like you when you buy some Bitcoin, you're buying a policy. And if everything goes well and around the world, all the political problems are solved and we get four Jimmy Carters and a whatever, name your favorite president. We get four of your favorite president in a row with a Senate and congressional majority. And they just start to work fixing all the problems of the last hundred years. And your pension is is well taken care of. Inflation lowers. Then the Bitcoin you bought, it'll, you know, the mechanics of it suggest that it will still have accrued in value quite a bit. And it'll have been a nice investment. And it's, you know, it's a fun thing to, to mess around with if you're into that. But 
there's an alternative. And I frankly don't think there's anything in between. And the alternative is that these unsustainable financial and political structures break seriously. And the only way to stitch the government budget and the financial system back together is through massive bailouts and associated uh, debasement of currency. And in that situation, your pension is returning, you know, maybe 50 cents on the dollar inflation adjusted. And that's the environment where Bitcoin really takes off. And so you've just bought quite costless insurance on your pension, because in the situation where your pension does badly, or your traditional investments like your CDs do badly, Bitcoin does very well. What do you think about that for an argument? This is something I, I think I'm going to have to listen back to, because I think you're on to something here. It's like a, it's like insurance that if the system does collapse, you've got money outside the system. And if the system doesn't collapse, uh, you, you, in theory, as long as you did it correctly, you didn't overspend. You didn't spend more than you could afford to lose. So it's sort of like pumping money into any insurance program that you never collect on. Right. And insurance programs are another thing that blow up if everything isn't fixed very quickly. So the fact is, you can't really buy insurance anymore because the financial model that guarantees your payouts is fundamentally broken. Because, of course, pensions and insurance companies have been a parking place for a lot of the government debt, which is currently yielding negative real returns. So... That's a problem, too. Shall we touch on privacy? Yeah. Just briefly, because we've, we've kind of talked a lot about KYC and AML mm-hmm. this episode. Yeah, I was kind of hinting at this earlier. I, I feel like this is part of the overall theme that we've been discussing. Absolutely. There are a plethora of laws about how financial institutions have to surveil user activity, look at the transactions, see who they're between, and possibly forward that information to the government. And they do it all the time. But it doesn't really prevent so-called bad people from doing bad things. For instance, HSBC has been moving money for the WCM777 Ponzi scheme, which is frankly a known Ponzi scheme, and HSBC was still banking them, still helping them steal people's money and move it offshore so no one could ever get any money back. Standard Charter and Deutsche Bank have been facilitating transactions for the Taliban for a very long time, and they were reporting these transactions. So the financial institutions were compliant, but the financial regulators, they don't seem to be set up to actually get a report that the Taliban is moving money around so they can press women more effectively. And then some regulator steps in and is like, no, we're going to stop that and make the world a better place. They don't do that. They just collect all the data. And the overhead of maintaining the system means that 30 million Americans don't have bank accounts. And around the world, most people do not have access to the financial system. And compliance with these laws means that fewer people will have access to the financial system and therefore be unable to ever save or build wealth in their family. So it's a human rights catastrophe. And that's one of the things that I think people who uh, have the privilege of participating in the system fail to recognize about Bitcoin. This is not quite what you're saying, but just as a more of like hitting home example, I'm giving my young daughters Bitcoin for Christmas, you know, some sats. And um, they're not really old enough to have bank accounts, but I can get them a, a secured wallet that supports multisig for their mobile device or little have uh, iPads and little uh, iPod touches. And I can give them sats and they can start saving today 
at nine years old. That sentiment, like to me, really made me appreciate there's people out there that are my age. You know, they're in their early 40s and they're tr- they don't have access to banking technology, but you know, they can get some sats and they can buy a, a gift card or something. Like it's a, it's a super important technology. If you drop your financial privilege, you, you'll see it. Yeah. And you're one bad day away from losing access to banking. I got a call from my bank about a transaction. And I was quite irate being asked about it. And I'm sure that went into my file. And so there will be a day when I'm trying to do some regular activity, like pay my rent, and I'll be asked what the transaction is for. Yeah. And I will reply, it's none of your business. And they're going to say, we don't want to do business with you anymore because we've deemed you to be a risky customer. Yeah. Rather alarmingly, it sounds like I've seen several reports online of customers of large financial institutions here in the United States, like, you know, top five banks that are closing accounts and just sending a money check. You know, what is it called? A a cashier's check. Cashier's check. Thank you. Just sending a cashier's check of your balance. If you had large or actually I'm not even sure about the size of transactions with FTX, but if they detect FTX activity, in some cases, they've been closing accounts here in the United States with no notice. People go log in and they got nothing in there. You, You know, imagine opening up the app or the web page and seeing a zero dollar balance and say you need to pay something right now and the money's in the mail. Sorry, you uh, we detected transactions with FTX and we've closed your account. I'm a Bitcoiner, but that would really screw me up because I work a fiat job. I wonder what would happen if I had to talk to my payroll department and say, hey, my bank just fired me. How do I get paid? You know, would they be sending me, would they be like cutting me a check and I'd have to go to a check cashing place that takes a 20% commission? Like what would happen? I have no idea. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like a comfortable conversation. And so, um, Right, because then your employer is like, well, why did they fire you? Like, do we need to be worried? Are you like, what are you doing that's so risky? Like, we now we're concerned about you. So you can see how something like this could just spiral into your entire life going off the rails. It's a situation where I think that's it's it's one thing to have that system, especially if that's what society decides that they need to have faith in their financial system. Okay, but I don't think it means we preclude something that's an alternative. And they still they still have so much monitoring at the on and off ramps that it it doesn't really feel like we need to. uh, I don't know, like when I just think back to Warren's bill, we don't need to increase this. And when you see this research that indicates that, you know, really, it's just collecting data and covering the arses of politicians. That's really upsetting because it's a massive pain in the butt. And I've heard from audience members who are just creeped out by the idea that they have to provide identifying information to like the strike app. They don't like it. It's scary. Yeah. Well, this your episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by Jupiter Broadcasting. Me, really, over there, just kind of saying holler, taking a minute to say, hey, did you know we have some other shows you could check out over at jupiterbroadcasting.com? Self-hosted shows, one we often recommend because that's about sovereign data and sovereign ownership of your information. I've been going all in recently on a next cloud that exists solely in a private VPN LAN using Tailscale, and I love that. I've talked about that in our Linux Unplugged program, where I also document my journey with Graphene OS. So you can check all of that out at jupiterbroadcasting.com or just search for Jupiter Broadcasting in your podcast app. I don't care how you do it. Just do it. I recommended your self-hosted show to a friend of mine who just got his first single board computer. Ah, nice. Yes. 
He really likes it. Thank you. The word of mouth, really, that is a that's it in podcasting because these shows are long. People are not going to listen unless someone they trust tells them to listen. They're just not going to do it. So word of mouth is just a huge deal in podcasting. And it's just nice to hear you and Alex talk for hours about self-hosted stuff. It actually helped me get into self-hosting years ago, hearing you talk about it and thinking, hey, maybe this is approachable because I was kind of nervous. I don't know why, like sitting down at the command line and typing stuff in felt like a big barrier initially. So listening to you guys talking about it made it easier for me. A lot of the reasons why I'm a big believer in sovereign finance and truly having your own money locally, it's it's a lot of those same principles and reasons apply to data and cloud usage too. Which brings us to our Bitcoin education section. And to be controversial, our first subject will be from Casa about their new Ethereum multi-sig solution. So they're not sponsors of the podcast. Don't use them. I would never say use a custodian until they pay me so much money that I'm ready to compromise all of my values. And that has not happened yet. So why are we talking about this? Well, Casa is a company that does a Bitcoin custody solution where they give you an app. And you can do a multi-sig with Casa to store your Bitcoin. And because they're a serious company, apparently, I don't really know too much about them other than Jameson Lomp, who's been on the podcast, is their chief technology officer. But they help you secure your Bitcoin and they'll hold your hand through the process. Well, they also just started to offer that service on Ethereum. Took about five, six years. And they have an article about why it took so long to offer it on Ethereum and why they're doing it. And... I think there was some controversy about this. What do you think about Casa offering Ethereum multi-sig, Chris? It's, I'm really conflicted. Um, I think if you're a small project with one or two developers or a slight, you know, somewhere in that range, I think I can understand focusing on Bitcoin only. If you want to be a company, I feel like you can look at uh, Coinbase and you don't really need any more evidence. Like Coinbase clearly just exploded after they added all of the uh, ship coins. And I think there's an element of that. Like you can you can just simply address a wider market if you handle Ethereum and Bitcoin. It's, you know, potentially doubling the market even. So I do appreciate the market positions and forces that they were facing. I maintain, though, that as an end user and somebody who's been around for a long time, whenever a company starts to split their focus, it becomes like a a diminishing returns for me as an end user. All of a sudden, the product has multiple things that they're trying to do. Uh, The security of the product is essentially the attack surface is widened because it supports, you know, multiple protocols and multiple ways of doing things and multiple different types of complexity. I think as people who uh, don't write software, it's hard for us to really appreciate the orders of magnitude that come when you begin to support additional protocols and networks. Uh, It's hard to overstate it because something like Ethereum is almost like the complexity of an operating system. And so you're adding support for that. And I think if you kind of look at it in that context, you're managing something now that is the size of Linux and the size of Windows. And before you were only focusing on Linux. And it's just exponentially a bigger job. And there's not a lot of one-to-ones, right? You can solve a problem on Bitcoin, but it requires another ground-up solution to offer that same functionality on Ethereum. And this, at the broad strokes, is something that we've seen play out over and over again in the tech industry and generally hasn't worked out well. And the players inevitably who focus on the niche, deliver the one thing, 
and then wait until that market grows and then just just scale with that growth, inevitably offer the most competitive, fine-tuned products. But initially, it doesn't return the biggest revenue. And so I understand the market position. I just don't like it as an end user. This blog post is an opportunity to learn about multisig. And you can see that Bitcoin supports multisig at the protocol layer. And Bitcoin multisig is one line of code. Whereas Casa is, I think they're being reasonable about how they're supporting Ethereum. They're not trying to roll their own smart contract, which is very difficult. They're using a smart contract that has been in the wild for four years and okay, good. is considered secure. Good. It's, it's called the Gnosis Safe or Gnosis Safe contract. And I they have a link to the source code and I looked at it and it's... 420 lines long, including comments. And you do need to include comments because if you don't comment your code, it's more dangerous. So (laughs) that does count. Whereas with the Bitcoin one liner, it actually says what it does. 422 lines. Yeah, 422 (laughs) lines. So this kind of gets to how complex security on Ethereum is. Right. But you can also see that it raises questions because the Gnosis uh, safe contract was actually developed by an altcoin project which has their own token and chain. And so Casa is not touching the the altcoin or the chain, but they have to have a little fact where they're like, no, we don't, you're not involved with that. We're just using their work. So I think it's not a great look. At the same time, I totally understand that this is the number one requested feature from Casa customers. Yeah. I understand why they did it. I think what would be so useful for this communication, for this dialogue that we are now engaged in as a community, <laughs> like throw a few tropes in real quick, is if they followed up in a year and said, hey, here's here's how here's how it's gone. Here's how many users actually use this. Uh, because you'll often hear from squeaky wheels. And so it'll seem like a lot of signal, but sometimes it ends up, it ends up just being a, a small minority that was making a lot of noise. And the larger user base was just happily, quietly using the product. We'll see if they were a little more transparent about how it goes. I think that'd be really helpful for all of us to understand if this decision was was wise or not. But what you just talked about there, like, you know, the 420 lines of code or 12 lines of code versus the one line, I think that speaks to the challenge they have now as a wallet platform. They have to support both those configurations. And it's clearly an entirely different set of work to support each one of them. I actually do compliment them for outsourcing that work. Uh, my philosophy is that when it comes to security, you're often better off using something that's tried and true out in the public than using something that's homegrown. So that's, you know, a criticism I give like towards Telegram. They use their own homegrown encryption. Uh, and if Casa was doing their own homegrown uh, multi-sig here versus something that's tried and true, I'd be critical of that. I think when you can, you should, in terms of security, defer to the thing that's been banged on the most. We also have the latest Bitcoin Optech newsletter, number 230. And there are two interesting articles in there I just want to mention because they relate to things we've talked about on the show. We talked about lightning jamming attacks, where you can flood a lightning nodes channel with hash time lock contracts and lock up the channel. And so there's already a proposed solution, a project by Just Jaeger called Circuit Breaker that actually floods your own channel. So you intentionally lock up your HTLCs and then you unlock them for some peers. So you don't leave all your capacity open for everybody to just use. You kind of lock it up preemptively and then unlock it according to a policy. So that's a 
Smart Solution seems to add some complexity, but it doesn't require any protocol changes, which is cool. And then there is also a cool website that monitors RBF replacement transactions. So replaced by fee is this controversial ability to you send a Bitcoin transaction, it doesn't get mined, and you're like, man, I'd like to change that transaction, maybe add a higher fee, maybe direct it somewhere else, and you issue a new transaction that replaces it. Uh, this is controversial because some projects use insecure protocols like zero confirmation transactions to create a better user experience. Uh, we can now see these transactions in the wild on a website. It's kind of cool. I love these kinds of tools. The mempool observer. So you can just Google mempool observer RBF and it'll come up. But uh, we were talking before the show started, like Bitcoin doesn't have the prettiest looking tools, but it does have a ton of awesome tools. And this kind of observability is ultimately a type of transparency that gives me confidence, right? There's like, you have so many of these out there that really let you see what is happening at a nuts and bolts layer of the blockchain. You don't have to go by like any public statement by the PR department of Bitcoin or the CEO of Bitcoin. There's no FOMC meeting where somebody sets the price and tells you how things are doing and how they perceive the market. It's just all right there. And so, yeah, okay, it's not like crazy pretty, but it exposes a bit of data that both you and I find fascinating to look at, especially as this continues to be a debated topic. And I just love this stuff. That kind of stuff, as I guess what you would consider me, uh, you know, a long-term hodler, gives me confidence because I can see these things in real time as they develop. For sure. And we had a correction, which was a boost from last week from a user called Correction. At the 42 mark of the neocolonialism episode, Dad says the U.S. has less than 1% of the world population. I think his math might be off there. And my math was off. The U.S., I believe, has somewhere between 3 and 4% of the world population. I did the math, and then I forgot to write it into the show notes. So thanks for the correction. Remember, you can always get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. You can also consider joining our show Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element. The details are in the show notes and our channel is generously hosted by our flush with cash corporate sponsor, Jupiter Broadcasting, where Chris oh, yeah. is, is with us from there global headquarters on top of the seattle space needle with yeah. multiple tesla coils behind yes. him for ambiance from the rotating studio at the top of the space needle where we pay for it all with yield on our crypto from BlockFi. Yeah. just kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see uh, we're uh, we're a big staking operation here uh the behind the scenes this is just the media front you know <laughs> that was all a joke we don't endorse anything we just said we received two emails this week. Our first email was from Ibuki, who said, thanks for the neocolonialism episode. The neocolonialist attitude of the U.S. was always quite clear, at least viewing it from the outside. The analysis is probably painful to hear, but should not be surprising unless you have been living under a rock. And Ibuki sends two books, or a book and a movie, a book and a YouTube video, and the links. And the book is called The Dictator's Handbook. So that might be an interesting read. Yes. And I actually really like that CPG Gray video, the Rules for Rulers video, which uh, I've seen a couple of times already. That is a great video. Rules for Rulers. Links in the notes. And we also had an email from Craig, who wrote in to ask about 
paper Bitcoin. And specifically, Craig says, I can't get my head around how, as long as we have companies that use this paper Bitcoin method of selling Bitcoin, we ever get around the suppression of the price. Because the 21 million cap that is a cornerstone of Bitcoin will never really be 21 million with paper Bitcoin. How does it get fixed? And he's referring to essentially what FTX was, was people had Bitcoin theoretically in their account, but there wasn't an actual one-to-one backing. So if people began to withdraw it, there was people that had Bitcoin in their account as a number, but there was nothing, there was no coin actually backing it. So in, in theory, that was creating paper Bitcoin, right? Right. Because... The answer to Craig's question is we hold our own Bitcoin private keys. We withdraw our Bitcoin from custodians. And because Bitcoin is natively digital, it's super easy to withdraw it to a ultra secure wallet that you just generated a new address from. The way that we ensure the Bitcoin supply cap is we hold it ourselves. Maybe there are some situations where it makes sense to use a third party if you're doing some kind of financial transaction or selling it or whatever, but that should be a temporary thing. The default in Bitcoin should be self-custody, not your keys, not your coins. And that enforces the hard limit on Bitcoin. Sure. But not everybody's going to do that, right? And when you have perhaps in the future ETFs that are allowed that are also kind of going to contribute to this, I think ultimately, though, we have the total count on the blockchain, right? So you can you have the, the value that the exchange markets are setting. You have the value that these ETFs are setting. But there is final accounting at the end of the day that we do know how many Bitcoin have been created. So ultimately, things will have to revert to the mean. This is strictly better than any other deal in town. We don't know how many shares of Microsoft exist because stock shares are rehypothecated just like dollars on bank account balance sheets. We don't know how many dollars exist in the world. The Federal Reserve actually gave up trying to study the amount of dollars in the world because they thought it was just too complex. It was an unsolvable problem. So Bitcoin with the open ledger that keeps a history of all transactions and enforces a fixed supply is strictly better than any other alternative, in my opinion. And because it also has this killer app of self-custody, we're able to hold institutions to account. So exchanges, banks, financial intermediaries, they're always going to play games. But with Bitcoin, you can say, hey, thanks for your business. I appreciated whatever service you provided me. Go ahead and give me that Bitcoin back because I know you're going to play games and I don't want to participate in them. So it's this way to opt out. Super cool. And this is ultimately the superpower that Bitcoin has over gold. It's like if you could take gold and you could send it over email instantaneously and you could verify that it was a legitimate transaction when it came into your inbox, right? Think of Bitcoin in that way. And it all of a sudden makes sense. It's that is a it is a fundamental shift change innovation over what gold can do. Right. Because if I wanted to send Chris a chunk of money, maybe I bought some computer from him and I'm going to use gold, I'd have to take a chunk of gold, hope that it was the right size for the transaction. So that's a lot of overhead. Maybe I have to have a vault full of many different sizes of like gold coin at bars. Then I get a bonded courier, pay them a bunch of money and insurance and tracking to take the gold to Chris. Then Chris receives the gold and now has to cut every piece in half to see if I've put tungsten in there. It's it's incredibly costly and slow. Yeah. And then, of course, I have to like remelt it. What? And then I have to store it somehow. And 
reverse that process versus an instantaneous transfer of a fully verifiable asset. That's a superpower. And so I think in some ways the market has a self-correcting mechanism here. And what we see when we have these downturns, these bear markets, is it's a cleansing mechanism. They suck and they're hard right now when it's a nascent asset that the rest of the world doesn't understand. They're harder than they'll be, you know, in five, 10 years from now, but they are very cleansing. Which brings us to boosts. Thanks for everyone who boosted in using a podcasting 2.0 app, sending us some sats on the Lightning Network, as well as a message. And just FYI, sats is short for Satoshis. Satoshis are the true unit of Bitcoin. There is no such thing as a Bitcoin. There are just 100 million Satoshis that we call a Bitcoin. And if you get into the docs on your Bitcoin Core node, you can see all of this on the command line. I feel like that could be swag for the show. There is no such thing as a Bitcoin. Bitcoin dad pod. Yeah. Hashtag. Yeah. Right. That's some deep stuff, dude. Write that down. I like it. I want a shirt that says there's no such thing as a Bitcoin. Already have that tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, DJ came in with a big baller boost this week. Thank you, DJ. 42,000 sats. DJ writes, your analysis is spot on. And the rabbit hole goes deeper neo-colonialism all the way down world bank's first bar was france conditioned on a domestic political intervention france also around that time set up colonial fiat currencies that france has since manipulated to france's benefit at the expense of people using those currencies even after those colonies gained their quote independence (laughs) as nations in the meantime quietly stealing those countries' resources and the fruits of the people's labor. So DJ is saying uh, this game's been going on for a lot longer than 60 years. And of course, DJ is referring to the CIFA franc, the French colonial currency that is used by a lot of, I think, North African nations that were part of France's colonial empire in the past. Our next boost from Crypto Kyle. 22,223 sats. Duck, 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 goose. Thanks for the description of that numerical joke. I like the duck, duck, goose. That's a, I think, see, so for the duck, duck, goose, it's 22,223 sats. Duck, 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 goose. Uh, Greg, Greg or Hammett? Oh, man, I got the hard one. I think it's Greg from Texas. You can let me know. He he boosted in with 5,000 sats, and he said, thank you for informing us about a serious problem with the IMF and the exploitation that surrounds it. God bless. Well, thanks, Greg. God bless you, too. And I guess you interpret the TX as from Texas because there is a God bless in there. You don't get that greeting in the Pacific yeah, Northwest. Right. I, I read that. I was like, yeah, it's, you know, like, cause that's the thing they do down there. Yeah. We don't do a God bless up here much. Right. <laughs> and then, and I know, see, so God bless is a good thing and bless your heart. Well, that's sometimes oh, that's a, bad a bad thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Is that oh. like, you're an idiot. Bless uh, your heart. Bless your heart. Van Vroom boosted in 5,902 sats. Great information. Thank you for the boost. Van Vroom. Yes, thank you very much. Marcel came in with a row of sticks, 1,111 sats. The sats are a little tight for me right now, so I can't make a big boost, but I'm still listening, and I hope you can find a way to make the show sustainable and keep the episodes coming. Well, thank you, Marcel. Your longtime support is appreciated. Thanks for the sentiment. I'm just trying to shake down Jupiter Broadcasting for all those fat sponsorship dollars, but wish me luck. And our final boost came from Opie1984 with a thousand sats. Your discussion on the IMF reminded me of the book Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I'm familiar with that book. It's a good recommendation. 
It's an interesting autobiography from someone who was boots on the ground at the IMF. Check it out if you get the chance. Yeah, that's a worldview changing book. Yeah, I recommend it. Economic Hitman. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, December 16th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with uh, me, Chris. Uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.